Hey there, welcome to night school. It's just Batty and I here on a Saturday night, and he's looks like he's fallen asleep now. He was barking just a minute ago, so I was wondering if he was going to weigh in on this episode, but he look, he's looking pretty tired. Earlier we were playing with the Frisbee, and then he took it up into his bed when he was done, and I looked over and he was using it as a pillow. So uh, a, fris- a dog Frisbee, you know, it can be both a pillow and a toy. Uh, but it, what I was thinking about just now is that we live in a world now where being a radical is too attractive to be a radical. Like the idea itself is too attractive for, well, rather, the idea of being a radical is too attractive right now for whatever radicalized idea to actually be a potent, radical, revolutionary idea. And, and I mean, I think it goes to the idea, you know, you, there's the the awful sayings that go around like you know the revolution will not be live streamed or you know it's all it all comes from the revolution will not be televised however it goes but one i was thinking of today is the revolution will not be improvised because you know a core part of rebelling and being radical in whatever way you know because i think the word radical gives us this immediate visual of, of, let's say, like a, a radical leftist. I th- for whatever reason, the word radical tends to be associated with the left more. Like you hear extremist with the right, and then you hear radical with the left. And I'd like to get away from that because somebody can be a radical of any kind. And I want to make it clear that that's what I'm referring to in this episode, a radical of any kind. But, uh, but you know, you can see where the act of being a radical, of being a rebel, of being a revolutionary is inherently improvised. And I'm of the theory that everything is improvised. But if, if there's one thing that's a little bit more improvised, it's when you fundamentally change something. When you suddenly go against the grain and, you, you're tr- and in doing so when you're trying to change something particularly... Because that's what we see from radicals. That's what we see from revolutionaries. It's not just, they're not just doing it for fashion. They're not just doing it for style. Although many of them are, obviously. Obviously a lot of so-called radicals and revolutionaries are just doing it because it's, it's something cool to do. And it, it, it allows you to look a certain way and talk a certain way. I'm not saying that's everybody. But I think if you deny that, well, I don't think we're going to see eye to eye on much. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's supposed to be something that's that's radical, or sorry, uh, something that's radical is, is supposed to be something that's inherently mostly improvised, because it's like, hey, we're figuring, we don't like what's going on, we might have a plan, but we're figuring this out as we go. And of course, the reality is that everything is improvised. Um, you know, and I mean, I, I say that generally, it's like, obviously, some things are sort of plotted out to such a degree that they're they're going to go smoothly. They're going to go according to plan in almost every case. But even then, those those acts of imposed order, that forceful sort of order that is put upon things, even that, though, is just like holding a shield up to a hurricane. You know, that little moment of forceful order that you're imposing on something in the face of true chaos, is just like holding like a little buckler shield 
up to a hurricane and being like, yeah, I'm going to make you do what I want, hurricane. 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 You know, that's pretty much what you're doing. Even governments, especially governments, are just holding a little buckler shield thinking that they're controlling the hurricane, controlling the tornado. Oh, you guys are doing such a good job controlling the tornado with your little shield. Oh, you're going to make it go where you want it to. It's like, yeah, you might like block the wind for one little second. You're going to block one little like pixel sized space of wind for one second with that shield in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, I applaud people for trying to apply order to things. I think I mentioned the story on here of like my friends and I getting frisked to go into a club and just the the people we were with were upset. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes it's fine. Sometimes order is good. I think it's a good thing they frisk people to go into this club in the, you know, in the middle of a big city, a club that has all kinds of, you know, sleazy people coming in and out of it. You know, I get it. I don't like it. I don't like being frisked, but I get it. So, I mean, I'd say that's the case with order and me more often. Since I am somebody who just, I mean, obviously I am somebody who rebels. I try not to make it my entire being. I try not to rebel for the sake of rebelling. But it's like, obviously I rebel. And always have. And I just, that's a part of me I can't necessarily change. You know, I, I, I guess I haven't found the, the exact perfect niche to fit into. They would completely cure my constant rebellion, you know, if that makes any sense. But, uh, yeah, so it's like, you know, I don't mind a little bit of order imposed here and there, especially when it makes sense. I get it, but though, I think that's what I'll say about order is order is not something I like. It's something I get. I understand order. And you can understand something and see the function of it through that understanding without applauding it or liking it. And I feel that way about a lot of things. I mean, I feel that way about a lot of things that society seems to require in order to function. I get it. I don't necessarily like it, but I get it. And and without a better idea, without something that makes more sense... Sometimes you just have to go with the things that you do understand, that do make you go, okay, I get it. I wish it didn't have to be this way, but I get it. That's how I feel about most laws. I mean, really, when it comes to, you know, government and, um, you know, the legal system, any rules of any kind, that's basically how I feel. Because I'm not anti-rule. Like, that's why I say when I'm a rebel, I don't rebel against rules just for the sake of rebelling against them. But I also recognize, like, that I'm, I don't consider myself a radical, though. That's one thing I'll say is, you know, obviously rebel and radical aren't synonymous ideas. They're very closely related. You know, people use them kind of interchangeably. I think I've been using them interchangeably until this moment. And, uh, but they're not necessarily the same thing because I don't consider myself radicalized. Because I, I think the difference between those things is that a radical tends to be radicalized by something, by an idea, which is why people say, like, radical Islam, the radical left, the radical right. It's like, you're not just a rebelist. They don't, they don't say the rebellious right. You know, extremist is obviously used, it, like I said, it, we've kind of started to use extremist more toward the right these days, but, 
you know, you don't, you never say like the rebellious right, the rebellious left, rebellious Islam, rebellious Christianity, rebellious Buddhism. My, I can tell you, my future wife, that Buddhist Republican girl, you know, she's going to be, uh, she's going to be a rebellious Buddhist, obviously. But, uh, you know, anyway, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, you do have a tendency to see, you know, being rebellious and being radical in the same light, because, yeah, obviously some radicals are rebels, but the reality is not all radicals are rebels, and that's what I was getting at a minute ago with the idea that, like, some people are just doing it because it's, like, what their friends are doing. You know, there's a lot of people in this world, and this isn't me being, like, people are ship. People are a bunch of ship. What a sheep. What a sheep. What a sheep. What a sheep. You know, this isn't me doing that whole shtick because I don't, I hate that. I mean, that's obviously that's always been embarrassing when people say that. Like I've all, like whenever somebody refers to people as sheep, that embarrassed me from the day I heard it. I've said a bunch of embarrassing shit. It's not like I'm holier than thou or I have like substantially better ideas. But like, I remember the, I remember the first time I ever heard somebody say like people are sheep. And I was just like, oh, you're, that's, that's one of the dumbest ways to express you're, oh, you know, it's just it's just embarrassing. It's just embarrassing to hear somebody say that. If you say that, that's okay. I don't hate you. I just would never say that. People are ship. Ship? Um, but, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, this isn't even me trying to be like, people are ship. It's me just saying that the reality is you know and, and I know and everybody who's ever been a part of a group atmosphere... A social atmosphere. If you if you've gone to school, you know maybe the workplace a little less. But if you've gone to school or been part of a social circle or some kind of community, some sort of scene, you know there's a lot of people who would rather go along with something they either don't believe or might even disagree with, if it makes the difference between them having friends or not. And specifically, if it means having the friends they want, they will go along with a lot of things. And, and so I'm not saying they're doing it just because I think this is a better way of looking at people like that. And there's a lot of them. We know there are a lot of them. And I don't have any problem with them because I think they're doing what I think they're just trying to prioritize as best they can. You know, the reality is not everybody can stand on their two feet and stand up for what they feel inside at the expense of having, you know, certain friends or, be, or, you know, whatever it is they're looking for. A certain career, maybe. A certain anything. It could be anything that they feel would be sacrificed if they stood for something, you know, that, that, that might get them flack, that might make them lose certain friends, whatever it is. And, I mean, in these days, it seems easier and easier to do that. Like, I could probably lose a friend today if I wanted, if I just said, I like Dr. Suisse. Hey, 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 uh, hey, friend. Did you know I like Dr. S I didn't like Dr. Suisse when I was a kid. I didn't like the cat in the at. I didn't like the cat in the at. But I, uh, when I was a kid, but now I, I love Dr. Suisse. Like, I could probably lose a friend, especially if I said it like that. But they wouldn't know what I was talking about. The cat and the at. 
Dr. Swiss, Dr. Swiss, Dr. Swiss, the sweet Dr. Swiss. <laughs> um, but I could, I could lose a friend today if I wanted. Just if I, if I, like, I would know exactly who to talk to about that. Like, there are people that I consider friends and acquaintances where, like, I could call them or send them a message today and just say, just sitting here reading some Dr. Suisse, cat in the at. And they would probably be like, you shouldn't be reading that. Oh my God. Like, I, like, I could message somebody right now and, and say these three things, which are, this, this is how amazing our world is. This is why I can't even be mad. At, uh, you know, I'm not going to use the buzzwords. This is why I can't even, can't even be mad at the social hysteria. This is why I can't even be mad at the collective psychosis. Because first of all, it hasn't consumed me yet. So I can't be too mad. It hasn't destroyed me yet. But the reason I can't be mad is because we live in a world today where like you could contact somebody that you probably know personally and just tell them, yeah, I'm just hanging out here on my Saturday, uh, listening to Morrissey and the Smiths and reading Harry Potter. And then after I'm done with Harry Potter, I'm going to read Dr. Suisse, Cat in the Ant. And that you might lose that friend. Or they might at the very least be mad at you. Just by listening to the Smiths, reading Cat in the Hat, reading Dr. Suisse. And reading Harry Potter. I don't, I don't have a funny name for Harry Potter. Um, but uh, it's just funny that those things have become, like, associated with ways of thinking that, you know, could affect your social standing. Probably not with most people you know. I'm not trying to say here, I'm not hysterical. I'm, I'm not one of these, like, people who's completely paranoid about this stuff, you know, in the same way. Like, if, if all you do is pay attention to, you know, like Tucker Carlson and like right wing Twitter, of course, like you could end up be- becoming completely consumed and hysterical about it. This stuff is happening. But I mean, I just mean it's like you could easily seal yourself off in a bubble where all you do is hear about this stuff and, um, you know, lose your mind about it. But to me, like I find the humor in it, too. Like I find the humor in the fact that Morrissey is so controversial that Harry, the author of Harry Potter is so controversial that Dr. Suisse is controversial. And I know the reasoning. I know why people feel that way. But out of all the things that have become somewhat taboo, I would dare say that they become somewhat taboo. And, and like I was saying, it's like not taboo with everybody, not taboo with the average person. But my point being about like finding someone today who you could end a friendship with just by mentioning Harry Potter or something or or Dr. Suisse, you know, like the the fact is you could find somebody if you live on the West Coast, if you're me, basically, if you're me, but if you live on the West Coast, if you live in a in a city, if you have friends who are involved in like art and music and like subculture or any anything that's like niche you know, basically, if you have any liberal friends, you could end any of those friendships just by saying, like, you're reading Dr. Suisse right now. Not that that's the average person. You know, like I said, I'm, I think you can you can wall yourself into this world based on what you pay attention to. And, and people who are politically radicalized do this on every end of the spectrum, where all you're seeing are examples of this and all you're doing is reading opinions about this. 
And you might think that that is what the average person thinks when it's not. You know, I, I don't think the average person, but, but I will say the average person will go along with a lot. And that, that brings me back to my, my point about this stuff, which is that a lot of people are willing to sacrifice an opinion on things like that, their own opinion, if they have it, because it's not worth, they would rather trade that opinion for like staying in the same circle of friends. They would rather at least like smile and because I mean, like I remember back before things were much more radicalized, pseudo radicalized, because I, I want to get back to that about how I don't think anybody's truly radicalized anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, back before people were like this pseudo radicalized, you know, I, I had like liberal groups of friends and they would say they would make things that I considered somewhat outlandish. Not everything they said. I mean, the the reason they were my friends is, you know, I have a lot in common with liberals. And I have a lot not in common with them. And usually it makes no difference on a, on a personal level. And that should tell you something. But uh, then people got pseudo-radicalized where they decided to insert this stuff in every conversation. And that is real in this part of the country. Like, that is not just, like, the whole, like, ruining your life, like, I'll just say it so that people know what I'm talking about, cancel culture. Like, that whole thing, while it's very real, that's something that you can easily get too consumed by if you're stuck in a bubble. But what I will say is, like, the constant inserting of radical political talking points into everyday social conversation, that is not just something that you see in a bubble. Like that has been a part of my life increasingly, my day-to-day personal life. I think I've even poisoned the show with that a little bit. I think I've even poisoned this show a little bit like I'm doing right now by talking about this stuff, but it seems unavoidable. And that's, that's why I'm not like hating on the people who bring it up casually. Like the people who now use relatively polarizing political talking points as part of small talk, like replacing the weather and sports, like the sort of person who does that, it's not like I think they're a terrible person. I think they just don't know what else to say because this stuff is so front and center. And that's how I feel when I'm doing this show where like sometimes I talk about politics when I don't like to because these these things are so front and center. I don't I don't know what else to talk about sometimes. And I do have something to say about these things. And so I think that's what people are doing, too. Like when you are hanging out with random friends and they're just like, yeah, I'm sure glad that, uh, you know, uh, Trump's felled the uh, yeah, whatever it is, you know, people, the things people have been saying all the time for the last five, four or five years. I, I'm borrowing this peach ice puff flow vape, the tobacco vape, it's a nicotine vape, Um I'm using, my friend let me borrow it, and I'm using, a little, honestly, a little too much of it. Hopefully I don't get too into it. I don't think I will. It's not attractive enough to me. You know, it gives me a little buzz, but it's, and I'm not, this isn't a promo. I'm telling you, this ain't, this ain't a peach ice puff flow, and that's the name of the brand, puff flow. And the, the flavor is peach ice, so it's a peach ice puff flow. This isn't an ad for it, for the peach ice puff flow. I'm just letting you know what I, I'm just letting you know what I got in my mouth here. But anyway, what I was saying is, before the puff flow was, uh, before, it's like, it's like AD, BC, it's like BC and AD, before puff flow, after puff flow, um, 
after the peach ice puff flow. That's what we call volcanic eruptions in this part of the world. Peach ice puff flows. Oh, did you see the lava? Did you see the lava from Mount St. Helens when it erupted? Lava? Oh, you mean the peach ice puff flow? Yeah, it destroyed forests. <laughs> Took down mountains. The peach ice puff flow. Is this my daughter? Hey, excuse me. Come here. Come here. Have you met my daughter? This is my daughter, Peach Ice Puff Flow. Puff. This is my daughter, Puff Flow. <laughs> this is my daughter, Peach Ice. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, you know, it, I, what I was getting at was just like how this stuff has become inserted into casual conversation. And that's not some like conspiracy theory. Like that's not something that's exaggerated by pundits. That's something that's just been a reality that we've dealt with. And, and the reason I brought it up is because maybe like in like 2013, 2000, I mean, basically any time before 2015 uh, and maybe even before 2016, you could have conversations with your friends who might consider themselves pretty far on the left. And like you might, like I do, like I, have, I see eye to eye with them on a lot of basic human levels. But they might say something that's a little more out, that's a little too outlandish even for you, and you just sort of like laugh it off, and it doesn't plague the conversation. But I knew something was weird like around 2015 probably, where I was I was hanging out with a couple guys I know who I like. Great, I mean, obviously, like these are people I like. And, you know, it came up that like me and this other guy who was there, who I didn't know very well, like both were more conservative than the other friend we were with. And it turned out by more conservative, like the guy, the other guy who fell into the more conservative place, it turns out he was just like a, a total like bleeding heart liberal, but it was just he was more conservative than our other friend. And then I was more conservative than that, you know, not to say I'm some, not to say I consider myself some traditional conservative at, at all, but uh, I was certainly more conservative than either of them. But we got to talking about it and had a really good conversation about it without even getting into individual points, like just on a philosophical level, we had a good conversation about it. But one thing that stood out to me was like the more liberal friend said something and he was like, yeah, I don't really care what you believe. Like, just don't be a dick. But he meant it in specifically with regards to conservatism. Like he was saying like, yeah, you can think whatever you want, but you can't say whatever you want and be a dick about it. And I, I, it stood out to me at the time because it was clear, like like me saying it now, it might not be clear what the exact context was in conversation. But in the context of the conversation, it was like, basically, it's totally cool for you to believe what you believe. But if you say it, you're a dick. Like if you express what in my case are pretty mundane values, like I don't think there's that much that I believe in, whether it falls into a more conservative territory or not, that is truly controversial. Like maybe it, it depends, you know. I, I think it depends on on the obvi obviously the audience, but it's like when it comes to my core values, the life I want to live, and the the way the direction that I want civilization to head. When I have the audacity to think about that, but you know, when it comes to that stuff. I don't think there's that much that's truly controversial about what I feel and what I think. But it did kind of, it, it stood with me at the time, like 2015, that like this this friend of mine who was pretty far on the left had felt comfortable making a point that like expressing conservative values 
could potentially make you a dick. Because, you know, I think saying anything could make you a dick. Like, like I, I think the just don't be a dick idea is perfectly fine, but it was a little weird to have it shaded by, like, this... It was weird to have that idea be politicized. And then we, we've seen that come out in full force, where, like, the mainstream is just openly saying, if you are conservative at all, you're a dick. And then it doesn't help that the other side's like, no, 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 if you're a, on the left, you're a dick. So it's just this game of, of calling everybody dicks. And people are afraid of, of their friends thinking they're a dick. You know, like I keep trying to get to here, but derailing myself. Like, you know, the social motivation to have friends, not lose the friends you have, to fit in. And these aren't, those aren't trivial things, you know. We have a tendency to think of those things as trivial. Like, it goes back to what I've talked about before where, like, when people say, oh, that's so high school, and I want to go, oh, you mean life? That's so, that's so all your life. That's so adulthood. Because it's like all of the things that people blame high schoolers for. I've seen repeatedly in every facet of the adult world. And I don't, and, and so it's like, why do high schoolers get all the blame for something that human beings tend to do all the time? Men, women. I've known macho guys who gossip who are catty behind each other's backs. I've known, you know, I've known artists, like I mentioned before, who are like extremely competitive and passive aggressively so, you know, where it's like the same traits just exist in people. And unless you can just conquer your demons, they're going to be there somewhere. So it's like when people say, oh, that's so high school. It's like, oh, you mean your whole life? That's so your whole life? Because your whole life is that way. Unless you yourself conquer your demons and you, you're careful about who you're, you spend time with. But it's like if you're not careful about who you spend time with, there's a really high chance you're going to run into like, you know, or I mean, you'll just you'll experience it at work. You know, mo- most workplaces are like high school. A lot of them are. And it's not because those people never grew up. It's just because people who don't have control over themselves, who haven't conquered certain parts of themselves, who don't have the willpower to, you know, minimize that petty part of themselves, like they will just behave that way. And when they get in groups, it becomes magnified. And so it's like, you know, your entire life could potentially be like high school and you're actually exceptional if it isn't. You're actually the exception and you probably had to do deliberate things. You probably had to have discipline in, in how you conduct yourself and who you know if your entire adult life isn't just like quote unquote high school too. Um, and uh, with that said, like things like trying to fit in and be cool and liked and stuff like that, like while we think of those as things that high schoolers care about, they're things everybody cares about. You know, there was that Sopranos episode, you know, where um, like Polly puts his mom in, in the, the senior living home and it's it's this like total high school environment where she doesn't get invited to the cool table, and then it culminates in Polly killing, you know, one of the senior citizen ladies, stealing from her, and then killing her when she catches him. Uh, sorry, spoiler. You know, sorry, sorry for the spoiler. Um, a stupid joke. Stupid to even make a spoiler joke. But uh, 
it's just it, it's just funny though because it's like that's what they were showing and then you see too on like i mean just while i'm riffing on the sopranos like you see where the entire show is high school too like tony's life is high school tony's like the alpha male of his high school and all the dudes defer to him you know he's always in this drama with women there's always drama between everybody there's drama between the toughest guys in the mob you know, so and and you know, yeah, The Sopranos is, you know, a very dramatized show, but that's realistic. As somebody who studies the mob, it's like high school for them too. So if mobsters are living in a, in a high school world, that shows you that everybody is, unless you basically conquer yourself, and even then you're going to find, even then, like even I find myself gossiping. Even now, you know, I find myself gossiping sometimes. Like some of the the most macho dudes I know. Stoic macho dudes I, I've ever known have, have turned out to be gossips, just like anybody, you know. Um, and but then the desire to fit in too—it's like that's just in us. And it's in us like this peach, peach, <laughs> like this peach ice that can't—that's obstructing my voice. Um, so it's like that stuff isn't trivial. Like I don't think you should. I think it's silly that people like act like that's this thing only young people go through. It's like, oh, only young people... Although I think that certain things transform you. I mean, obviously, like, the people I've known who have had children seem far less concerned with what people think of them. And that's not true for all parents at all. But it's just, I've noticed a change in certain people I've known who have had kids where... They're not trying to prove things that they had previously been trying to prove. And, it, I mean, it kind of culminates in, like, the the jokes people make about dads, you know, where it's, like, dads wearing, like, high-waisted pants with a belt and, like, a Bluetooth and, like, ugly clothes. Like, like dads stop caring about how they dress and they just look like dorks. Like, it, that plays into it because it's, like, that guy has had children. He's accomplished something significant. He has undergone a transformation. He's not concerned about trying to be cool. Yeah, there are parents who do, who do do that. A lot of them, a lot of parents are still trying to be cool. But you can see where that transformation does take certain people and basically like now they live for their children and sustaining, you know, basically they're living for survival and their children's survival and comfort. And it doesn't matter, like, what's hip or what looks good to wear, which is why those dads walk around with, like, a Bluetooth. Like, they don't care that it's not cool. It's convenient for their purpose, which is to, like, you know, help their family survive. And getting phone calls really easily, like, to your ear like that is going to help survival. (laughs) Um, And people go through spiritual transformations. Obviously, I was going to mention that. Anybody could, could have predicted that. Uh, but, you know, that'll make you care a little less, too. But you, you never really escape it. It's like I was talking about in about the uh, the opinion thing. Like, when you try not to have opinions, that becomes having an opinion. And so you inevitably, you know, won't escape that thing that you're trying to escape. So why try to escape it? Why waste your time? And I guess this is a good segue... Well, well, I, I do want to finish, actually, the thought about radicalization. And a lot of radicalization, even if it's based on something 
that is like a desirable political or social outcome, there is a big element of it that is simply attracted to the coolness of it. And I, I wish I could come up with a better word, but the word cool has stood the test of time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the word cool. You know, there is an inevitable coolness to it. But we live in a world where coolness gets co-opted immediately, and now it gets co-opted even quicker. Like, so, when something was cool, which meant rebellious, which meant that it, it, it was somehow different in its own way that wasn't controlled... You know, when something was cool, it eventually got co-opted. We know that it gets co-opted. You know, more people do it. Corporations take note. And it's not even a capitalism thing. I think it plays out anywhere. Anytime people see somebody doing something that they like or they think will give them status if they do it too, whatever it is. You know, I don't, I don't think it's just a matter of like, oh, capitalism always uh, co-ops rebellion. I think capitalism does that, but I think it it transcends capitalism. I think this is a process that goes far beyond our systems. I think this is really human nature. And uh, I think it's also, you know, how we've developed culture. So it's not necessarily like I'm saying it's all a bad thing. But it's like when something, when someone comes up with something new, whether it's in defiance, whether it's in resistance, whether it's radical, whether it's rebellious, often it's, it is. Oftentimes something new is going to you know, fall into one or more of those categories. And, and when it does that, somebody else is going to notice it. And, and as much as other people might give pushback or say they don't like it or feel oddly threatened of it, by, threatened by it, or just be, or they'll just be indifferent. Or ambivalent, you know, anything. They could have any reaction. Um, but, you know, as more people take notice and they're like, hey, there's something to that. I like it. Even if even if it's nothing more than I like it, even if it's nothing more than, oh, I like the people who are doing that. Or I want to be like the people who are doing that. That's how culture is formed. You know, it's not like this is just a, this is why, like, I hate ideas like the sheep thing, the ship thing. Because it's not like every time people decide to do something that some unique person did you know it's not like every time that happens it's a bad thing like it's not always just some like meaningless game of copycat you know that's how culture is formed and it builds up over time and if it's going to be I feel like a truly good meaningful culture it's probably going to do that gradually and it's going to build kind of like a thick bark around it like a tree you think about like a it's going to have a lot of rings. It's going, to, it's going to have a thick bark. But I think that's the truth. I think that's how culture develops. It's like culture, even traditional culture, was once a trend. You know, even, tra- even what we consider like these institutions of culture that we take for granted. We're just like, yeah, that's just part of the, the ancient culture that's always been around. Or our culture, it's something that we can just take for granted because it's always been there. It's like that thing started as a unique idea. Like the desire to use certain imagery. Like you look at Native American art, which is all over the place where I live. You know, you living in the Pacific Northwest, at least Washington State, like Native American art is everywhere. And sometimes I have to d- detach myself because I've been seeing it literally since I was born. Like, you can't grow up in the Pacific Northwest and not see Native American art everywhere from the time you're born. In both, 
you know, corporate settings. I mean, like both, you know, buildings have it. Like you'll, you'll see office buildings with like Native American art on the glass for no explicable reason. It's not like it's a Native American business. It's just part of the local aesthetic, part of the Seattle aesthetic. I mean, the name, the city of Seattle is named after a, a chief, Chief Seattle. And, you know, and so the, the visuals are everywhere. And you'll find them on sculptures. So you'll find them like both, and you'll find them on a grassroots level, like where there are real Native Americans in this area. And you'll see where they have totem poles, you know, they have their carvings, they have their art on things. But then you'll see where also like random office buildings will. The Seahawks logo, you know, the professional football team, the Seahawks, their logo was taken from a Native American carving, like the the bird with the, the eye. The bird with the eye, that was taken from a mat, like a, a Native American wooden mask, like that. They just turned it into a, a logo. So it, it's literally everywhere here. But I've seen it so much, and it, it is, I do take it for granted. And sometimes I have to remind myself, like, I'm looking at pagan art. And even though it's become widespread in this part of the country, and even though, like, I see it and I immediately go, Native American art. And I don't, I don't even look at it objectively. And it's not that I have an opinion on it. Like it's, I think Native American art is far preferable to a lot of the modern art that you see around. I would much rather have Native, Amer- Native American art around this area than something else. And they were here first, you know. Um, if they're cool with it, you know, that's cool with me. But uh, sometimes I'll see it and I'll like detach myself from like the... 35 years of like seeing that art and knowing exactly what it is I'll detach myself I'll dissociate myself and that happened the other day when I was walking at the college and they have a longhouse there you know they just hold classes in it but it's called the longhouse and it's decorated with Native American carvings and just different things like that and I was looking at this beam on the outside it was like a beam holding it up and it was a little more detailed because like, I mean, a lot of the Native American art and the reason why, like, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a fan of it is because like sometimes it's just like these big lines and it's it's in a, a very unique style that you associate with natives. But it's like it's just there's nothing for me to like like about it. It's just kind of these big open, you know like animals drawn in lines and it's cool that it's so abstract. But like... Sometimes I'll see something that is very detailed, and I kind of go, whoa. And that was the case with this beam outside the longhouse, where it was very detailed, and I was like, whoa. Like, it looked for a second, what it looked like to me was like any European pagan art. Like, it looked like something you could see anywhere. Not that it actually looked like European pagan art, but it was just tribal in nature, and in seeing it, like, in that moment, I was completely detached from what it was, and so I saw it as part of this, you know, much larger spectrum of primitive art, of tribal art the world over. And it was interesting to see it that way. And so I have to remind myself to to look at it that way sometimes because I'm just like, huh. Yeah, you know, when you remove your, like if you just saw that for the first time, like I'll sometimes think that about the part of the country I live in well, while, while we're getting all local here well while we're getting all loco here um you know i sometimes think like what if somebody just 
they lived on the other side of the world. They lived in a desert their entire life. They hadn't seen pictures of the Pacific Northwest. They hadn't seen pictures of Washington State. And they were just dropped off here. They were blindfolded, brought here, and dropped off. Like, how shocking it would be. You know, it would be so utterly shocking just to see what the landscape is like here. It's like my ex-girlfriend who one time was like, you know, like the trees actually make me claustrophobic. Like driving down street after street that's like lined with forests. She said like it made her feel claustrophobic. And that blew my mind because I, growing up in this area, I never once thought of the trees as like a wall. Like when the sides of a road or a path are, are walled with trees, I never thought of that as an actual impenetrable wall. Like I see all the, even if, even if there's no trail, like I'll look at it and I'll think like, oh yeah, I wouldn't want to walk through there because it's probably, there's like a lot of bushes and it's not, there's no real trail. So I, I would prefer probably not to enter the woods in that spot. But I don't think of it as impenetrable. I don't think of it as a wall. It definitely doesn't make me feel claustrophobic. I see it as open. I see it as actually scarily open. Like when I look at the woods, I think like that is, even though it is lined with tree after tree and and bush, tree after tree and bush after bush, you know, even though it is very densely filled with foliage and trees and all that, like I see it as incredibly open knowing that like I could go, if that's undeveloped, you know, if there's nothing on the other side of that and it's just forest for miles, which we have places like that all over here, that's actually way too open. That's scarily open. I could get lost just walking and, and I would never run into any wall. Like nothing would stop me. It might not be easy because there's no path or trail, but it was just in that moment though, I understood what my girlfriend meant because I, I just, I looked at it through her view where I was like, Oh yeah, she's from Texas. And even though she loves, you know, the landscape here and she moved here for a reason, like she just naturally is not used to this environment or habitat and the way she's wired is to see you know these these lines after lines of huge wooden things as something kind of impenetrable something that's kind of closing you in like a wall and so i understood what she meant like even though i didn't relate to it even though i i couldn't feel what she felt it was just like wow and so it's like sometimes you have to remove yourself from the way you see things. Like, where, yeah, if you grow up with nothing but trees around, you're going to see trees a certain way. If you, if you grow up with nothing but Native American art everywhere, you're just going to be like, it's, it's like no different than, than seeing anything else. That's the weird thing about seeing Native American art so much throughout my life. Is it's like it doesn't feel that much different from seeing anything else that's mainstream. And so when I remove myself from that and I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of strange art. This is actually very unique art. Even though I see it everywhere, even though it's on a sports team logo, even though it's in the lobby of a bank. Like if I remove myself from the context and just look at this and, and think about the fact that nothing else looks like that. Like native art, nothing else looks like it. They they developed a unique style of expression they developed a system. They developed a culture, a cultural, a way to express themselves culturally that is immediately identifiable. And many different tribes have a similar style. I'm sure there are nuances, but many different tribes have a certain style. But to get back to my point, 
that started with somebody probably just being rebellious, like carving something. And someone was like, what are you doing? You're going to carve that into the side of the canoe? You know, I know, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't a moment like that. But, you know, it, it, that's how things start, is it's like somebody does just decide to do something. And some people might not have liked that. They might have been like, you know, what are you, what are you messing with the canoe for? I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what that thing is. Uh, it's supposed to be a whale? Just looks like a bunch of lines to me. You know, no doubt somebody got pushback on that. And whether they got pushback or not, it became a big enough trend that the entire culture represents itself that way. And nobody's going to say like, oh, you're like, nobody's going to tell a Native American, oh, you're a poser for using Native American art. You're a, oh, you, oh, you do carvings. You're a poser for doing the same type of carvings everybody else did because it's their culture. It's what their culture does. It's expected that they, they do something traditional. And uh, you can kind of see where that has developed in its own way, like in our modern culture, where it's like you see where something like heavy metal is pretty radical. I mean, you would even see that word back then, like this is a radical. When, you know, rad, radical, all that. It's like, you know, something like heavy metal, though, is pretty radical. It's like, let's turn the guitars, let's turn the treble all the way up on the guitars, turn the distortion all the way up, add extra dis distortion, make these insane sounds by having two guitars and one playing leads, weird harmonies that you wouldn't expect, either like falsetto vocals or screams or any of that. You know, you know, you know what heavy metal is. And all the subgenres and all of that. And to think that, you know, somebody did that. Somebody had an idea that was like that. You know, I'm not going to get into a whole history lesson here on who did what first. But, you know, somebody had an idea that they thought was a good idea. Somebody liked it. Other people started doing it. And now we have this entire culture built around that. And a lot of that culture isn't even cool. You know, a lot of that culture is just LARPing. Because that's the issue with... I think things that are based entirely around art and music, because it's not like Native Americans were, you know, like an art club. You know, like Native Americans didn't start making Indians. I don't, I don't even I don't know what to call people anymore. Um, I was taught Native Americans, so I'm going to go with that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not like Native Americans were members of an art club who were just like congregating because they all made art and were all interested in art. You know, they were already a tribe. They were already a culture, and they just developed certain ways of decorating their culture, of representing their culture. So, like, that's a difference between something like heavy metal, which, in my opinion, like, while it did develop, some, like, an aesthetic that is immediately identifiable, that is cool, I'm a fan, that has stood the test of time in its own strange way, you know, while it has done all of those things, it's different now. And when people try to do things that guys were doing in, let's say, the 80s or the early 90s, they just seem like LARPers. Even if what they're doing is musically good, like even if they're talented, even if they're interesting in their own way, you can't really shake the LARP. Whereas, you know, you don't look at a Native American who's doing a traditional carving and say, look at, I, I like what they're doing. I like the totem pole, but it, I just can't shake the LARP. I just can't shake the feeling that they're LARPing. 
And I think part of that, though, and I mean, you might, you know, you might say some of them are LARPing. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think there's LARPers everywhere. Um, but still, there's a reason why it is more powerful for, let's say, a culture like that, as small as it is compared to the larger population. I think there's a reason why something like that, though, is seen differently than some newer subculture that's developed its own aesthetic, that's cool, that has stood the test of time. It's because it started just as music for music's sake. It started as art for art's sake. And I don't think that subcultures, and for that matter, cultures, that are built around something that is just art for art's sake or music for music's sake or some sort of hobby or interest just for its own sake, I don't think that those can stay alive because I don't think they have any meaning inherently in them. And some do. Like, there are subgenres that do. But not a lot of them. And even that meaning, you know, oftentimes is just bullshit. Bullshit. So I think that's a difference. That's a difference. Like, when art is developed around something that is far more vital, like survival, like, you know, being a tribe, being a group of people, who live in a certain place. You know, I think that art that is based around that is is going to... I think honoring the tradition means something else and it means something more. Whereas, like, if you look at heavy metal, like somebody who's trying to play... Like, there was a trend a few years ago where guys were trying to look exactly like crossover thrash bands and play that sound... Like, something that teenagers perfected, and I'm not even into that style, but, like, it's something that teenagers perfected in the mid-1980s or early 80s. I don't even know. I'm not a big enough fan to know when it peaked. But it's, like, wearing, like, the hat that's, like, flipped up with, like, something written underneath it. You know, being a Hesher, like, wearing, like, high-top sneakers, you know, untied or whatever it is. You know, tight jeans ripped up. You know, that whole look throwing a leather jacket, throwing this, there's other decorations to it too. But like, you know, there's a reason why those guys look cool and they define something and they were doing something new, relatively new. You know, like crossover thrash. Look at look at what these crazy teenagers are doing. But then when you try to do that in like 2015 or 2007 for that matter, I think I think the the retro trend was kind of happening around then. I remember like playing music with some friends and there were some other people in the rehearsal space with a band and they were one of those kind of bands and it was just weird to see it because it's like, you know, one of them had like his hair permed with like a bandana and they were all in the same like high top sneakers. It's like if you ever saw like the Megadeth promo photos, not the Megadeth's a crossover band, but uh, the old like promo photos of Megadeth where they're all in like white high top sneakers and it looks crazy, but it's somehow really cool. You know, it's like they were trying to look like that, and it was just weird to see them in, like, 2007 and just be like, oh, you're trying to do that thing that teenagers perfected then. And you could always say, like, they're honoring the culture of it. But then it gets back to the fact that, like, heavy metal is by its very nature radical. It's by its very nature rebellious. And when you're following a heavy metal tradition, you might be good at it, and that might be cool in its own right, but it also seems somehow improper. And that kind of goes full circle back to my original point of this episode, which is just that it seems to me that 
to be radical or being radical is so attractive to our current mainstream culture that it's impossible to be radical. The things that we consider radical are so attractive to people right now, and they've been growing increasingly more so, that it's like doing that, doing something that is defined as radical is inevitably not being radical. It's inevitably not rebelling. And this is something everyone knows who pays attention. It's not like I'm saying something revolutionary myself here. But, uh, you know, something else I want to get at, too, is that I've realized is like something I harp on on the show again and again is that everybody's improvising. You know, yeah, it's possible to be an expert in something. You know, it's possible to develop specialties. It's, you can become skilled. But for the most part, everybody is improvising through life. Let me hit the vape. One of the greatest acts of improv ever put to audio is me hitting the vape. I wasn't planning on it. It's great improv. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, people, uh, you know, spend so much of their energy trying to convince you they're not improvising. And when you realize, you know, that the authority figures in your life are improvising too, it's liberating. It shouldn't be scary. Like when you find out, like, and this happens for most people, like around the time they hit puberty, maybe not most people, this, this happened to people like me, like by the time you're, you know, puberty age, you know, for sure that something is up and you're like, okay, like all that knowledge and authority and experience I thought my parents had, my teachers had, that policemen had, that firemen had, that astronauts had, is my song. (laughs) It's like a Charlotte's Web song. It's like the rat from Charlotte's Web. (laughs) All that great experience you thought that everybody had. The police, the firemen, the teachers, your parents. I I don't know how to continue it. They're just pretending... Suddenly, I'm the I'm the rat from Charlotte's Web. I don't even know if that's a good impression. I'm not trying. I'm not even trying to sound like him. That's just what it sounded like to me. But uh, no, you realize, like, yeah, the people while they're and and then like what you realize when you get a little older than that, at least I did, is like the first step is oh, everybody's just improvising and and trying to convince you they're not. Like everybody's trying to seem confident. Everybody's faking it till they make it, and I think making it is death. And then whatever goes beyond that, but everybody's just faking it till they make it, trying to seem confident, trying to, to seem like they know what they're doing. When your mom punishes you, when your mom gets mad at you, she is completely improvising that. And yeah, she might be, the way she handles it might be conditioned by her own upbringing. So it's like we have seeds planted in us, but she's making choices right then and there about how to deal with an issue. And no matter how many rules and guidelines and classes she's taken on parenting, she actually is still just suddenly making a decision. And right before she made it, she she probably didn't know exactly what she was going to do or say. Your boss, it's the same thing. And we're impressed when people seem like they know what they're doing. But the reality is that a lot of people waste their energy. They waste their precious improv skills trying to convince people they're not improvising. 
And it's like, if you use that energy on doing something useful with the act of improvising, you'd be far more interesting. You might create something that actually, hey, maybe it will lead to a culture. Maybe it will lead to a tradition worth repeating. Hit the bait. Nothing like a peach ice puff flow. A traditional peach ice puff flow. Um, but, you know, if you... Sometimes you interrupt yourself with a peach ice puff flow. And uh, just right when I had the, some real steam going. Right when I had some real steam. Um, you know, you make something worth doing again and again when you improvise in a way that is not trying to hide the fact that you're improvising. Because if you're truly good at improvising, it doesn't matter whether anybody knows it or not. And they might be more impressed if they know that it's improv. And they might be more likely to say, hey, this guy is onto something. This, this gal is onto something. But people spend so much of their time trying to deny and hide the fact that they're improvising. And pol- I think the reason why politics at its very core feels like poison and the news feels like poison and algorithms feel like poison and many things feel like poison <laughs> is because many of these things are dedicated. They use all of their magic just trying to convince you they're not improvising when they really are. And that's why you feel something is wrong when a politician talks or a newscaster talks or or a social media mogul talks. Because most people are just winging it one way or another. And I think that we've, I think we're winging it now more than we ever have. Because there was a point in time where, you know, you and your family all did a trade. Your dad was a a blacksmithy. His grand, his dad was a blacksmithy. His daddy was a blacksmithy. My daddy was a blacksmithy. You know, everybody's dad was a blacksmith one day. And, you know, if you pass that along, like you are going to be an expert in that. Like, there's going to be some ancestral memory of pounding iron with a hammer, and you're going to get taught that, too, from the time you're born. You're going to be around it. You're still improvising, you know. (laughs) You can't escape the improv. But, you know, in that situation, I think you can have expertise. Like, I think you can have expertise in life. But I think we used to live in societies where... You know, because your family was dedicated to a certain craft, you actually did know what you were doing a little more. And people could trust you to do that thing. Whereas, like, now, if you get a specialist to do something, like, you don't know if they just, like, took a class at the Votech last week. Like, you hire a plumber today, and for all you know, he got certified at the Votech last week. Not to say he isn't good. But it's like he's not a guy who, like, took over his dad's business, who took over his grandfather's business. You know, he hasn't been dedicated to this craft his entire life. Those guys still exist. But it's like it could also be somebody who just, like, 
took online classes to be a plumber. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you can do that. But you know what I mean here, where it's like you just don't know whether it's someone's, you know, first time even doing something. Because our society has shifted in that way. As it's given us more options, it's actually made us improvise far more. We have to do far more. We have to pretend we are far more things than we ever did. And that goes into like having friends where because you have access to so many different people, you know, some people feel the pressure to they, they feel the they, they feel the pressure to like prove to their friends that they're um I mean I mean it just goes back to the thing I was saying about like people are willing to prioritize having friends over going with what they feel is right or going with what they truly feel. Which is what improv is, is, is the funny part. Is like and I and I say all this as someone like I didn't take like theater improv classes. I'm not like some improv kid. I'm I'm saying improvise in the most you know straight up definition of the word. But it's like when you just feel something on a gut level and even as you you know think about it, even as you intellectualize it, if you keep coming back to that feeling and you can't quite shake it and you know it has some meaning for you or purpose or value, that's kind of improv too. It's like improv isn't just throwing shit out there. Like it's also going with those core feelings. It's also letting those core feelings guide you. And even though you're having to make every decision as it comes, you don't need to pretend that it's not improv because you have this guide. You have this thing inside of you that is actually making it feel not that improvised. Even though you've given in to the, to the great improv, even though you've given into that, you have this thing inside of you that is making improvisation so easy and so natural. And the last thing you could ever imagine doing is trying to pretend that that's not, is trying to pretend that that's not the case. Like trying to pretend you're not just figuring it out. Like, oh, I better put on a suit and talk in a certain tone of voice. Because people might know that I'm just improvising. My greatest strength is the fact that I can improvise. We should want that in a president. Like the idea of of these politicians being like, oh, you know, I've never flip-flop. I never flip-flop. And uh, I've been doing the the same thing forever. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I have everything planned. Oh, well, you see, my strategist, you know, like when politicians act like that, I would love a politician who says, you know what? I don't know a single thing I'm going to do. But what I'll tell you is I'm a darn good improviser. I can make incredible decisions on the fly. I can come up with amazing things. I can say incredible things on the fly. Who cares how good my speech was that somebody wrote for me? I'm going to say crazy things on the fly that blow your mind. Because I'm that good at improvising every step of the way. That, to me, would inspire trust in a leader. 
because that's what a leader actually has to deal with. What a leader actually has to deal with is when things don't go according to plan, when things do just randomly come up. And you can't expect anybody to be able to deal with everything, but you know that's just the funny thing about how twisted and backwards our view of these things are. A leader is somebody who is really good at figuring things out as they come and making things up, not lying. Because a lot of the lying that politicians do is them trying to convince you they're not improvising. <laughs> when they could be using the creative energy of lying, because lying is creative. I mean, like, if you write fiction, you're... And try and like, like, I mean, the only difference between writing fiction and telling a lie is that you're letting everybody know that, you know, it's not real and it's not supposed to be. Whereas like, if you write fiction and you tell somebody this happened to me, you're, you're now lying. So, you know, you know, it really depends. That's a, a clear case of intent. And that's the weird thing about intent disappearing from our society. Like, we're nobody, like, one of the issues with all this, you know, political anger is about not listening to someone's intent and saying intent is irrelevant. And that really is like saying, hey, did you know that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is a liar? And somebody's like, what? <laughs> what? And you go, yeah, he's a liar. Nothing he wrote is real. And it's like, oh yeah, it's because because it's, it's fiction. And the person's like, no, but he's that that means he's a liar. J.R.R. Tolkien's a liar. And you're just like, yeah, but that's not what he's trying to do. And they're like, no, but look, you read it, read read Lord, read a lot of the rings. Read a lot of the rings. Uh, you'll see. It's that, that stuff never could have happened. That stuff never could have happened. I don't know what this voice is. It has a lot of. This is a this is a weird mutant demon voice that transforms. J.R. Tolkien's a liar. It's like read the book. Read it. Read it. It's all bullshit. And the other person's like, no, but it's it's fantasy. It's it's fiction. And that person just keeps insisting he's a liar. And that person who's insisting J.R.R. Tolkien's a liar, on one hand, they're telling the truth because it isn't real. It isn't real. It, it isn't the truth. But J.R.R. Tolkien knows the kind of... But then, but then you look, if, if you actually follow Tolkien, you know that he kind of saw Lord of the Rings as sort of an alternate mythology for, you know, Western Europe. So even though you can't call him a liar because he knew he was writing fiction and he wasn't trying to pass Lord of the Rings off as the true history of Europe. If you listen to things he said, he was kind of skirting up against that idea. Like the Silmarillion is a creation myth. Like you could say, you know, an argument could be made that he did believe some of the stuff that he was writing about. See, he's a liar. J.R.R. Tolkien's a liar. But the reality is it's absurd to call him a liar. But we now live in a society where we're calling each other liars, we're calling each other names, because we're unwilling to look at context, we're unwilling to look at intent. And so we might as well just be calling fiction writers liars because it's not real.
And fiction is a great example of improv. Like you're making something up as you go, which is what improv is. And writing fiction, no matter how many drafts you make, no matter how many rewrites you do, you are still, at the end of the day, making something up as you go. And, I mean, it gets silly. I mean, you, you can get silly like a, like a child about this stuff and be like, well, all music is technically improv to begin with, too. Like, the first time you play a riff is technically improv. Like, if you're just jamming with people and you write a riff that you like, that's improv. And you like it enough to play it over and over again, and you can, and it's no longer musically classified as improv, but the original idea was improv. But what you're doing by playing that riff over and over again is you're saying, I really like this thing that I improvised, but I'm going to make a tradition out of it. I'm going to make an entire tradition out of this thing by turning it into a song. And so that's what I meant earlier. It's the same idea that I meant earlier about when a culture likes something enough to keep doing it. It's something that was improvised because improvisation at its very core is one of the most radical things you can ever do. It's the radical thing. And it's not inherently political. It's not inherently social. It's just you as a living being, the most radical thing you can do is improvise. And to not just improvise, because we are all doing that. But to embrace the fact that you're improvising and not use your improv juice. To, not to use that juice trying to convince people that you're not improvising. Like, it doesn't mean that every single thing you have to do is brand new. Like, you can turn a riff into a tradition. You can steal somebody else's tradition. <laughs> you know, you can, uh, people do that. Um, you know, you can steal somebody else's idea or be influenced by somebody else's idea. It's like when you hear Dark Throne play a Celtic Frost-style riff. You go, you don't go, oh, they're trying to steal from Celtic Frost. You go, oh, they're trying to honor that tradition. And I have mixed feelings about that, in, especially in music. But you at least know their intent. You at least know what they're trying to do. And you also know they're more than capable of coming up with their own ideas. So that's an interesting thing about it, too. It's like adding to it. Because it's, like, it's not like a culture comes up with an idea, or it's not like an individual in a culture improvises an idea, the Native American who makes a carving that nobody else has ever done, and the rest of the tribe says, or some members of the tribe say, hey, I don't like, I don't like you doing that to the canoe. And then other members of the tribe say, hey, that actually, that actually makes me want to get in the canoe even more. And then that wins out. And now all the canoes have a certain style of art carved into them. But it's like it doesn't necessarily have to end there. Like people keep adding to traditions. And that's what's amazing about not dismissing tradition completely is you can continue to mutate tradition and it will mutate. It inevitably mutates. If you think every tradition stays exactly the same forever, even when people try to make it the same, you don't know what you're talking about. Because... You can't keep any tradition completely consistent forever. It's just not possible to do. There are too many p 
potential changes, circumstances change. You just can't keep any tradition, you know, a carbon copy of what it once was. But I think when you dismiss tradition and you're a radical for the sake of being a radical or a rebel for the sake of being a rebel, I think you make something that has no foundation in a lot of cases. Or its foundation is all there is to it. Like, that's kind of how I feel about certain forms of, of music, where it's like the foundation for it is all there is. You can't do anything else with it. I mean, that's honestly kind of how I feel about, like, pa- like certain abstract paintings. Like, I'm not a Jack—I don't care about Jackson Pollock's. I don't care about Jackson the Polack. You know, I, I, I don't have any beef. I don't even have an opinion. I really don't have an opinion on him. But it's like when I see stuff like that, that is just like globs of paint and that kind of thing, I think that is the entire foundation. Like someone is going to argue with me and say, no, somebody could be influenced by that and do something else. But I feel like it's already laid so bare, like not even using Jackson the Pollock as a example here. Like just talking about somebody, though, who just like puts colored dots like somebody, or or just like the the classic example of like a like a red dot on a white piece of paper, the Japanese flag. No, but you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm derailing myself here, but it's like a green dot on a white sheet of paper. Okay, I'm not somebody who's gonna be like, how is that art? Oh, you think that's art? Oh my God, that's so stupid. That's not art. You know, I'm not gonna take that attitude. I have no interest in it. I don't like it, but I'm not gonna be like that. Ain't, that ain't art. You know, I don't care enough to say that. But at the same time, to me, that that's like the... All there is to that is the foundation of doing that. Like, that to me is not an idea that goes anywhere else. And I know somebody would probably disagree and be like, oh, well, so-and-so, this movement was influenced by that movement. This influenced so-and-so. You know, I know somebody who knows a lot about art. I don't. I know somebody who knows a lot about art could potentially argue with me about that, and I wouldn't. I would let them win. I would let them win. I don't need to win that argument. But my point being, like, there is some kind of art, there's some kind of music, there's some kind of expression where there's a foundation to it. But once they lay that foundation, you really can't build anything else on top of that. I mean, that's what that's the point I've made about hybrid music and stuff, where it's like someone's like, we're going to be a free jazz death metal band. We're going to be a death metal band with a saxophone. And it's like, that's a novelty that will appeal to somebody who's like, whoa, I I can't believe they thought to have a saxophone in a death metal band. You know, it's going to appeal to somebody who thinks that way, but that's not going to go anywhere from there. Like that foundation is already everything it could ever potentially be. Like nobody is going to make a good idea that grows from that. There's going to be no family tree that traces itself back to that. Again, somebody would probably disagree and be like, oh, well, like... This other band, oh, this band, like, they were a, a free jazz death metal band with a saxophoner, and then the, but they influenced this band that was a death metal band with a saxophone and a trombone. You know, it's like someone who likes that or something would, would say that, but for me, there are just certain things where the foundation is all there is, and you can never build anything further on it. And... uh So to me, like a truly good new idea doesn't just create something new and interesting in its own right. It actually creates a foundation for further development, which is why 
to me, the best aspects of cultural expression have to have that they have to have a foundation, but they they have to allow for more people to build and mutate that structure. And uh, you know, I think we're all gonna. I think like one of the the sad things about being who we are is like, I think we're in an in between stage, where it's like we look back at like traditional Europe and the way homes looked, the way castles looked the aesthetics and we're like that that feels so superior to strip malls that feels so it's so obvious i mean who's who's going to tell you that a castle isn't as cool as a strip mall you know who's going to tell you that a strip mall is cooler than a castle i mean nobody but um so i i don't know what to say about where we're at i guess that's what i'm getting at here is like a culture should bu- not only have something that builds a foundation but it should allow people to continue to add to it without changing the foundation without changing the structure and it's like to get back to music it's why like if you're going to play in a black metal band in 2021 you shouldn't make it like like an obvious defiance of the tradition like you shouldn't try to make it completely different from the foundations of the genre for the sake of being different. Like you shouldn't make it a free jazz black metal band. You shouldn't do that. But you should also be doing something more than just like honoring the orthodoxy or paying tribute. And it's true for anything. That's how I feel about anything that's been around for long enough. Like if you're really good at LARPing as teenagers from decades ago, good for you. Maybe what you do, maybe you'll write a good riff. But if that's all you do, I don't think that that's, you you know, I don't don't think you're building on anything. I don't think that you're expanding anything. You're not improvising. And to me, improvisation is at the heart of what it means to be a radical being. Not a radical political activist but a radical being, the ability to create something new and turn it into your own tradition, to turn it into a tradition that other people might be interested in. And to even do that with a, among a few people is amazing. But the idea that some people are capable of doing that and it becomes part of a culture forever. And I guess with Native Americans, I would have the question, like, has anybody changed it up? Like, without being stupidly modern? Because, like, Obviously, there's somebody who's like, yeah, I'm going to take like there's obviously there's like a Native American teenager who's going to be like, yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a graffiti style version of traditional art and, you know, go for it. I don't buy to me. That's the free jazz death metal like that to me isn't like really adding anything that to me is novelty. That's not actually mutating what's already there. That's not like mutating the tradition in a cool new direction to be like, yeah, well, this is going to be like a Native American graffiti, you know, wall mural. Like that's, I'm not going to tell you what to do or not to do. I don't want, I don't want to look at it. But uh, I think there are ways though. I think, I think it is possible to continue to mutate tradition without destroying tradition. And I think you have to mutate underneath the surface and, and kind of keep almost like a latex, uh, you, you know, almost like, an, almost like a latex shell 
<laughs> around, around, you know, everything else. Cause it's like, you don't want to change the whole thing externally. And that's what we see from novelty and kitsch. Like novelty and kitsch is usually like a really obvious superficial matchup. It's why like if you were ever if you were into comic books as a kid, it's why a lot of the crossover comics sucked. It'd be like Shadowhawk and Spawn. Crossover issue. And it's like you'd be excited because you're like, whoa, dude, we're gonna see Spawn and uh Shadowhawk on the same pages. We're going to see him on the same pages, dude. And it's forgettable. It's it's just this novelty. It's like, we're going to take... I, I never read Shadowhawk. I read Spawn. I, I don't even know if they did a matchup between them. I'm just using it as an example. But it's like, here you take like two things that have their own stories, and they're popular because their own stories are good, and we're going to create this stupid novelty where they cross paths because people will be like, whoa, dude, they're on the same page. They're on the, look, at, look at, they're on the same page. You know, like that's the extent of it. And I mean, I know there have been good crossover comics. Like the Phantoms in the back of my head are like, there's good crossover comics, you know. But, you know, that's what those things usually are, just novelties. Because you take two things that are good in their own right. You know, whether you like it or not. Like I said, I don't I, I wasn't a Shadowhawk fan. I never I never read a single Shadowhawk in my life. I never even read a single copy of Shadowhawk. But I assume it had its fan base. I assume it was popular for some reason. But it's like to cross that over with Spawn just to be like, look, they're together. Look. It's almost like supergroups, where it's like so many supergroups are actually uh underwhelming for the same reason. Because it exists out of novelty. And so that's always the the thing is like you want to be able to change things. You want to be able to make your mark as a human being in any field. But you don't want to topple tradition entirely. But then you don't want it to be just like improv for the sake of improv. Or worse, pretending not to be improvising, using your improv juice to pretend you're not just improvising, to try to convince people you know exactly what you're doing because you're a figure of authority. But to um, add something to whatever field you are in, because, I mean, I, I always use the references of, like, creativity because it's something I know, but I don't want to limit this to the, to it. I don't want to limit this to creativity. I want to say that, you know, whatever field, whatever area you're working in, whatever it is you do with your time that you find value in, I feel like the dilemma is always defying tradition just enough to develop something unique while also honoring tradition because there's a reason that's the foundation but then tradition, in turn, has to provide a structure that allows you to build something on it. Something mutant. Some weird... I mean, maybe it's like the Westminster M- M- Mystery House, whatever that thing is. <laughs> whatever that thing is. That house that, that people just kept like adding random rooms onto. Like, even if it's that. Even if it doesn't make any sense, sometimes it does. 
<laughs> Even if it doesn't make any sense, sometimes it does. But it's true. Like sometimes you can like take a, a traditional foundation and add some mutant component on it, and it makes perfect sense for no apparent reason. But you intuitively know it. And nobody can convince you otherwise. And, you know, sometimes that's an idea. Sometimes it's, it's not even about... Sometimes it's simply an idea in your head. And that is a sense of meaning, if anything is. Like, if you have an idea, and no matter what anybody else thinks of it, no matter whether you share it with anybody at all, but if it resonates with you deeply and it somehow connects tradition to something new, if it somehow transcends the time in which you live and you know makes you feel connected to the things that came before and the things that aren't here yet, and you yourself are now creating a thing that wasn't here just a minute ago. Doesn't matter if it's a thought, doesn't matter if it's, you know, something creative, it doesn't matter if it's something innovative, it could be technology, it could be science, it could be anything. Could just be treating somebody a certain way. Because that's an idea, you know, that's, that's a part of this too, is that you know, at some point, somebody decided to treat someone a certain way that was not typical. You know, going back, I brought up laws at the beginning of this and, and rules and all that and, and said that I'm a rebel and I, you know, I, I do tend to... I like to learn the value of rules personally. Like, I don't just accept rules for rules' sake, but it's like, I think like many of us, I've broken certain rules in life and it was through breaking those rules that I learned the rule's value and why it exists. And there are those people who never do that and they uphold the rules and they try to impose the rules and they're always receiving another set of rules. It's not even that they're traditionalists who... You know, uh, just, uh, hey, the our ancestors believed this, and so we believe this. It's that people get handed new sets of rules all the time, and they go, I'm going to enforce these now. And we see that a lot in politics today, where, like I've talked about before, like, there are people on the left who are saying things that they would couldn't even have conceived of five or ten years ago. They're putting their all of their energy into ideas that they probably had never even heard of 10 years ago. The conversation, the political conversation has shifted so dramatically. And certain ideas have come to the, that floated to the top so quickly that it's like the average like mainstream Democrat is arguing for things that they probably had no idea existed 10 years ago. Social issues. I'm not, I'm not going to get specific. You can fill in whatever blanks you want. I would say the, it's, it's true on the right as well, if you want me to play fair here. Um, but, uh, you know, you think about that, and like that's a great example of like somebody was handed a new list of rules and told, these are our rules now. 
And that person responded as if those had always been the rules. They were like, oh, I was enforcing these rules yesterday, but I guess these are the new rules. So they turn, up, they turn around and start shaking a finger at somebody. You're breaking this rule. You're breaking that rule. And some of the people they're talking to haven't even gotten the new set of rules. Or maybe they've, they've heard of the new set of rules, but they're not really sure why they exist or how they even apply. But you can be dang sure, dang sure, that there are people out there who they get a new set of rules and they start saying, well, I'm going to start enforcing these now. So it's not even about tradition in that case. It's like there are some people who just love rules. But it's like I love rules for a different reason because I've broken certain rules and learned why you don't break them. And not that I'm the biggest rule breaker in the world, but I've broken enough rules to to know the value of those few rules. Like, I didn't have to kill anybody to know thou shalt not kill. Because that one seemed pretty obvious. But there are other ones. There are other rules that aren't quite as serious, but they are nonetheless serious enough to be mentioned in Scripture, in different faiths. It's why there's a lot of commonality between the five Buddhist precepts and the Ten Commandments, even though they're not the same amount of numbers, you know, even though five isn't ten, what's on there is crosses over perfectly. There's a lot of crossover between those. And, uh, you know, some, you for, you know, you're fortunate if you don't break because they'll ruin your life. They'll ruin someone else's life. But there's a lot of minor ones, but you realize after breaking them that they're not so minor, and there's a reason why different faiths, different sects, different cultures have similar rules about these things. So, um, you know, I don't know. There's always a battle, there's always a dilemma, and you should embrace battles and you should embrace dilemmas when they come to You know, you figuring out what's right for you. And that involves trying to figure out what aspects of tradition matter to you personally. What aspects of tradition are actually better for the whole of everyone. And even if you yourself don't like the tradition, it's like me and Thanksgiving. Like, Thanksgiving is this tradition, and there's a whole group of people who don't like it because they don't like what it represents in terms of colonialism, you know, native and and pilgrim relations, you know. Like, I mean, and they have a right to feel that way. Absolutely. I think Native Americans have a right to resent Thanksgiving. I think people have a right to sympathize with them. But I think people have a right to also see Thanksgiving as something else. I think they have a right to see that tradition as something beyond its origins. Because you think about all the good that happens on that day. Yeah, people joke about like fighting with their uncle and family problems. But there's a lot of people who spend time with people they love and express gratitude over that. But I hate Thanksgiving. You know, I hate Thanksgiving. I don't go to Thanksgiving. I've never been a fan of Thanksgiving food. 
I've gone I've gone on and here about it about the colors make me sick. Like I feel like Thanksgiving colors are like you ripped open a human body. It's like an autopsy. It's like got some maroon, some brown, some yellow, some flesh colored. We got we got some tan. We got uh, like ten shades of brown. Some dark yellow. It's like some it's like some sort of autopsy on a on a body. It's like all these like you know, it's all these colors of things that come out of you or, or inside of you or your flesh. It's like, I just think of like, it's just this weird, like, it, you know, it's just a weird set of colors, even though they're all natural. It's like to combine all of those colors together as part of a holiday aesthetic, you know, it just doesn't work for me. And I was never really a fan of the food. That said, I don't like think people shouldn't celebrate. And that's what I mean about like, that's a tradition that I don't care to follow. I don't really like what Thanksgiving stands for. Like historically, I think you know, I I don't I don't I'm not in love with what it stands for. I'm not in love with the food. I'm not in love with the visuals. It's a tradition that I personally don't participate in. But I'm not going to turn around and say nobody should celebrate Thanksgiving. Nobody should celebrate Thanksgiving. You know, I would never turn around and say that because it obviously serves a vital purpose for people. It, it brings families together. There's a lot of good that happens on Thanksgiving. So it's like your own decision to not participate in tradition doesn't necessarily mean that other people shouldn't. And you should be aware of that. And it doesn't mean, and I mean, you can see where people have, have changed Thanksgiving. People who have problems with their families celebrate Thanksgiving with friends. And I'm not going to use that awful word they use for it. I'm not going to use that word people use when they have Thanksgiving with just their friends. They shouldn't have used, they shouldn't have come up with that word. No, I'm not going to say it. But, uh, you know, so those people have added their own mutation. And I think that that makes sense. I mean, I think it makes sense for people who want to celebrate a traditional day of importance in our culture, but to say, hey, we're going to improvise a little bit. And and we're going to celebrate it our own way with the people we want to celebrate it with. They're honoring the tradition while adding their own twist. And, you know, I, I just as well uh, drop an atomic bomb on a Friendsgiving get-together than attend. But I still think they should be allowed to celebrate. I would only drop the atomic bomb if you tried to force me. I, I, I wouldn't drop the atomic bomb on a Friendsgiving get-together, you know, just on its own. I'm not, I'm not a freak. If you tried to force me to attend... I would drop the atomic bomb instead of going, just to be clear. No, but, uh, but it, it, and I used the word. I used the word. I acknowledge that. I'm going to hit the vape. But that said, like, even though I, I like the idea of it kind of bothers me because I don't like any aspect of Thanksgiving. So the idea of like some like young liberal Friendsgiving 
said it again, is going to be bad to me too. But that said, like, I see that that is a tradition that is worth, it's, it's nice to have a day where there's like four straight days of people not having to do anything. People get a, a Thursday and a Friday off and a weekend off. There's football, which I love. I love, see, I love that aspect of it. If there was no Thanksgiving, I wouldn't get all that football to watch. So even I have something I get out of it. But uh, I do appreciate that, you know, people can improvise and can do their own thing with Thanksgiving and that people can do that with art. Where it's like, I don't know, I think that you should very rarely approach something and say, let's see how I can destroy this and build my own thing in its place. Because I think that more often than not, builds a foundation that nothing else can be built on. And then you hold your ground when you do that and you say, like, I meant to do this all along. Yeah, I built a foundation that can't support anything else, but I meant to do this because I'm not improvising. I meant to do this. And I think that's what a lot of radicals do. I think a lot of radicals... You know, even though what they're doing is should be an act of improv- improvisation by its very nature, because they're changing something. You see, where a lot of radicals of all from all different places will instead be like, "I know exactly what I'm doing," and then if they manage to actually build that foundation that nothing else can be built on, they then double down and are like, "This is what I meant to do." I just see the value in mutating existing structures as much as possible. And I think in mutating existing structures, in, in mutating tradition, you know, if tradition is inevitably going to change and evolve, you can help it mutate in a, in a direction that you find favorable to you, to everybody, or whatever it is. But I think when you try to tear it down entirely, you create novelty at best and tragedy at worst. And oftentimes probably a combination, some sort of novel tragedy or a a tragic novelty. Come see my band this weekend. We're called Tragic Novelty. (laughs) That is my new band. My new band is Tragic Novelty. Tragic novelty. That is what ends up being made, though. And you can't, you, you truly can't build anything. You truly can't make anything useful from a tragic novelty. But one thing you can do is you can stop pretending that you're not pretending. And I know that sounds like, a, like an annoying cliche and it's probably like a quote from a movie or something, but, you know, don't waste your juice trying to convince people that you're not winging it and improvising, because you are. You are improvising. And instead of using your energy to convince people that you're not improvising and you just straight up improvise, you really have no ceiling. You really have no barrier. There's really nothing stopping you 
from mutating the things you love away from the things you hate, making them grow higher, making them more beautifully grotesque, just making life more interesting. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can